Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker, and thanks for joining me here on the Bible and Life. We have been looking at a series of questions over the last handful of weeks, just questions that I've gotten from a variety of places that people have about the Bible or specific Bible passages or things related to the Bible. And the question we're going to look at in this episode is a little bit different kind of question. It's not so much about a Bible passage or a question of theology as it is a question about the New Testament in total. And the question is, how do we know we have the right books in the Bible? How do we know we have the right books, particularly in the New Testament? This is the question of the New Testament canon. And when we say canon in the sense of New Testament canon, we're not talking about a big gun. We're talking about the list of accepted or official books, in this case, books of the New Testament. So how do we know that the books that are in the New Testament are the accurate books, the right books? I mean, what, weren't there other books that were, you know, like eliminated or suppressed or kept out and all sorts of things like that. So that's the question we want to explore on this episode of The Bible in Life. And the reality is there is just a ton of misinformation, bad ideas, misrepresentation of the facts about this question. To illustrate that, let's go all the way back to when I was in high school. Uh, I was actually shopping for shoes with my grandpa. Now, my grandpa was a good man, huge influence in my life, faithful to his wife, um, took great care of me and my brothers and sisters because my dad left when we were young. And so he just, he taught us a lot. He's a really, really good man, a really, really important part of my life. But not necessarily a follower of Jesus. He believed in God, and I, I still don't really know all this thinking on things. We had a lot of conversations over the years. And one of the first conversations was on this occasion in high school as he and I were buying shoes. That was one of the things my grandparents did for us kids. They helped to support my mom as a single mom. They bought us shoes. And so we're shopping for shoes for me in high school. Somehow the question of Jesus, the Bible, and Christianity came up. Don't remember. But in that context and in that conversation, here's what my grandpa said to me. He said, John, why in the world should I trust the Bible when just a bunch of men got together on some island 300 years after the time of Jesus and they voted on which books were in and which books were out? Now, that represents just all sorts of assumptions, bad ideas that my grandpa had heard from various news outlets and various uh, news reports and things of that sort. And I don't know where he heard it all. I don't know what he was reading. I just know I've seen the exact same kind of ideas over the last 40 years on uh, places uh, like the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, Time Magazine. It seems like every year around Easter or Christmas, some you know magazine or cable news show or something has some report about Jesus, and they love to talk about how there was all these other books and all these extra gospels, and and we don't really know what happened back then because you know the church suppressed all these and they voted in uh, these particular books, but there were just thousands of other competing books and yada yada yada, um, and that's basically what my grandpa was getting at. And that was the question he asked me. Now, I was in high school at the time, and I didn't really know enough to know exactly how to respond to that. Um, and uh, 
the fact is, is it's just flat out blatantly wrong. <laughs> just a basic reading of history tells us it's wrong. In fact, even like a guy like Bart Ehrman, if you know anything about like um, liberal critics of Christianity, you know Bart Ehrman is no friend of Jesus, no friend of the Gospels, no friend of Christianity. Bart Ehrman is, has been for a long time one of the leading critics of the Bible and of the church and Christianity and teaches religion at uh, the University of North Carolina, written a number of books. Even Bart Ehrman, as critical of a scholar as he is, Bart Ehrman would say, look, the fact is, from all historians, whether they're conservative and have a high regard for the, the New Testament or not, all historians would tell you that the four Gospels in the New Testament are our best historical sources for the life of Jesus, and that all the other supposed Gospels uh, aren't reliable at all. Uh, even Bart Ehrman would admit that. And so, what I'm about to tell you about how the New Testament came to be is not like really is not that question. It's just like my grandpa's impression that he passed on to me when I was a teenager was just flat out wrong. The facts of history don't support that case. So how did how did we end up with the books that we have in the New Testament canon? And so the way I like to do it for the sake of simplicity is to break this down into three big periods to help uh, us really get a grasp on the big picture of this. And those three periods are the period of writing and initial collection. So the period of writing, the period of collecting and circulating, and the period of listing. So three sort of periods in the development of the New Testament canon. Um, the period of writing is the time period of the apostles during the first century, from about 30 AD to about uh, 95 AD. That's the period of writing. Most of the books of the New Testament are written in the first um, 20 to 30 years after the life of Jesus. That's when Paul's writing his letters, and that's when it seems like some of the Gospels were written. The last book of the New Testament, the latest it probably was written, is about 95, and that's like the, the Gospel of John, Book of Revelation. Some scholars would even date uh, those books more around pre-70 AD, and so again, closer to the time period of Jesus. Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection was the year 30. And so the period of writing, 30 to 95. The period of collecting and circulating um, is really overlaps with that. It begins at least uh, as early as about 60 AD and goes to about, say, period or about 180. So from 60 to 180. And then the period of listing is from about 170 or 180 to about 397. These are our three big periods in the development of the New Testament canon. And what we need to understand is a really, really important principle is that authority precedes canonicity. That is, the books um, are authoritative before they're put in the canon, and their authority is why they're included in any official list of books. It's not that, that being put on a list all of a sudden made them authoritative. 
the authority came first, and it's the authority that led them to be listed off as part of the official books. And so let me just illustrate this walking through these three periods. Um, when we talk about the period of writing, what we need to know and re recognize as we read our New Testament is that the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, they knew that they were speaking with divine authority. They knew that they're both their uh, spoken words and their written words were the word of God, that they were writing with divine authority, that they were commissioned by Jesus as his official representatives to speak and write on his behalf. And as Jews, they had this kind of history of received scripture, received books that were the authority that shaped them, right? They had all that. They had the Torah and they had uh, the writings and uh, the prophets. And so they had all of that. And so that sort of gave them a precedent for uh, writing down authoritative words. And so they knew that they were speaking this way. For example, let me just read you a couple passages from the writings of the apostles to help us see that their authority, um, that they knew they were speaking the word of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says this, for this reason, we, Paul and his team, editorial we probably, but Paul and his team, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is also at work in you who believe. So Paul says that his teaching among them and preaching among them was the word of God. They recognized it as such, and they welcomed it as the word of God. Or here's another example from Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, this has to do more with Paul's writings. Look, he says, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or that he is spiritual, that he speaks by the Spirit, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. So Paul is writing with the authority of Jesus. He's writing the Lord's commandments. This is consistent throughout the New Testament, that the apostles knew that they were writing down uh, the Lord's commandments, that they were speaking and writing and teaching uh, with the authority of God himself, the authority of Jesus himself. So that's the first little bit during this period of writing that we have to recognize is that they knew they were writing the Lord's commandments, the words of God. Not only that... Um, even during this time period, this period of writing, 30 to 95, uh, during this time period, we already have uh, writings of the New Testament being considered or called Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, quotes Luke chapter 10 and calls it Scripture. Here's what it says. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing, that's from the Old Testament law, from the Torah, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's from Luke chapter 10. Notice the scripture says, and it quotes from the Torah, and then it quotes from the gospel of Luke. So 1 Timothy chapter 5 is written during the, the early to mid-60s of Paul's life, and uh, during that, even if you're a critical scholar and say, oh, Paul didn't write 1 Timothy, you still have it being written before 95. And so at the latest, this is maybe, you know, 70s or 80s, right? And, and so 
I take it as the writing of the Apostle Paul, and he's quoting Luke. Luke chapter 10, the scripture says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And, and so he calls it scripture. He recognizes it as such. Or 2 Peter chapter 3, written by Peter in the mid-60s. Um, and it refers to Paul's writings in context as scripture. It compares them to the rest of the scriptures. Look at what it says. First, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters. That's fascinating. That already begins to sound like there's a recognized body of Paul's letters speaking in the, of these things in which there are some things that are hard to understand. We all know that about Paul's letters, which the untaught and unstable distort as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Notice that Paul's writings, his letters, people distort them like they do the rest of the scriptures. Paul's writings are put in the category of scripture, of authoritative writings. And so that's the first period, the period of writing. And during this time period, books are being recognized as scripture and they're being described as that, thus having divine authority. The apostles themselves claim to be speaking and writing the commandments of the Lord, the word of God. And so authority comes first. And they already know they're writing and speaking with that authority. And there's already some sense in which these books are being gathered together so that we can talk about all of Paul's letters uh, as a, a body. And so period of writing, authority, uh, speaking the word of God, already recognizing some of these things as scripture. Then the next period, which overlaps with the period of writing, is the period of collecting. And we've already hinted at that, that they began to kind of compile or collect some of these books together in groups. And we see other examples of this during the New Testament time period. For example, at the end of the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, it talks about, be sure to pass this letter on. And not only that, read the letter that's coming to you from uh, Laodicea. Well, which letter is that? Well, we don't know. It's quite possible it's the letter of Ephesians because Ephesians clearly seems to have been intended for all those churches in Asia Minor and was circulated among them. And the natural postal route would be Ephesus up through the uh, other regions and other towns down through Laodicea and to Colossae. So um, maybe it's Ephesians. Whatever it is, it is a letter that is being circulated um, and we know Ephesians was circulated during that same time period. The letters were being circulated, not just to individual churches, but to other churches. And they were sharing their letters with the churches in their neighboring towns right from the get-go. So they're being circulated, which leads then to them being copied and collected. Um, and we see this all throughout, really beginning with the New Testament time period and the period of writing, all the way up through uh, the early church fathers, through about 160, 170, 180. And so you get early church fathers quoting or alluding to whole groups of different books. For example, Clement of Rome, a church leader in Rome, writing around 95, uh, quotes in his writings, quotes or alludes to 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Titus, James, the Gospel of John, Hebrews, Matthews. Not only that, 
Clement of Rome puts the Sermon on the Mount, which he's familiar with, on the equal footing with the Old Testament prophets. So here is an early church leader writing right at the end of the time of the apostles, and he's already got a collection of books in his hands that he can quote or allude to. Um, you get Ignatius of Antioch right around 110 or 115 in one of his writings, quoting or alluding to 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Philemon. He specifically refers to Ephesians. You get Polycarp of Smyrna. We don't even have a letter written to the church of Smyrna. And yet this is where Polycarp, he was a church leader in the city of Smyrna, writing around maybe 110, 115, maybe 120, writing right in that time period, he writes a letter to the Philippians. He specifically refers to Paul's letter to the Philippians, and he does so uh, speaking of it as scripture. And then in that letter, his little letter to the Philippians, he shows familiarity with, um, depending on your count, he shows, he quotes or alludes to either somewhere between 15 to 20 of the 27 New Testament books. Uh, Matthew, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on. Just tons of the New Testament uh, books that he quotes or alludes to. Specific phrases coming out of them. And so, depending on how scholars count it, it's somewhere around 15, maybe upwards of 20 of the books that he already shows familiarity with. Which means he has a collection of them that he's reading and he's learning and he's familiar with. One scholar of a, a century ago said this, he said that the short epistle of Polycarp contains far more references to the writings of the New Testament than any other work of the early stage of church history. Polycarp's use of scriptural language is so frequent that it is wholly unreasonable to doubt that he was acquainted with the chief parts of our canon. Like Polycarp just had the majority of our New Testament in his possession, and he was saturated with it. He knew it. This is just consistent through the early church fathers. Um, all the way up to, say, Irenaeus, writing around 180 AD, um, he had, Irenaeus had a collection of New Testament books that he considered scripture. He regarded them as uh, more valuable even than the old scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, he widely quotes from New Testament in his writings against the Gnostics. In fact, he cites virtually every New Testament book. So he's got a collection of these things. Um, this is just consistent in this period of collecting. They're circulating and copy, copying and collecting these books and uh, reading them and sharing with them as they teach other people. And so we see it. So we got the period of writing. Then we have this period right that overlaps with the time of the apostles all the way up to about uh, the year 180. So the, the next century after the time of the apostles, they're circulating, collecting, learning. Knowing, they know these books. They already got whole books of these things together. And then you get the period of listing from about 170 or 180 to 397. And um, here, what they're doing in the period of listing, this is really important, is they're not voting, as my grandpa said. They're not voting on which books are in or which books are out. They're not uh, like suppressing books. What they're doing is they're listing off the books that they've always recognized because it's during this time period that a bunch of the false books started to show up. Um, and so all of a sudden you get 
different gospels, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas. You get these other books now showing up 150 years after the life of Jesus um, and 120 years after the life of most of the apostles. They start showing up and they start attaching the apostles' names to them so they can begin to claim the authority, right? Because authority precedes canonicity. So they're trying to claim the authority. And so then the early church leaders are, no, these books um, aren't the ones that actually we've inherited, that have come down to us, that have been passed on from the time period of the apostles. These are false books. Here's the ones we've always recognized. And so during the period of listing, all they're simply doing is they're listing off the books they've always recognized. One of the earliest lists we actually have dates from about 170 AD. Um, and so in that first period, after the time period of the apostles, right, 170, maybe 180, it's called the Miratorian Canon because of um, the history of where it was found and who found it and all of that. The Miratorian Canon. And it's a list of New Testament books. It's a fragment. And so it's a sort of, you know, broken up. But the, the Miratorian Canon um, actually includes all of our New Testament. It's missing Matthew and Mark because it's, you know, fragmentary and old, but it refers to Luke as the third. And so it's got Matthew and Mark uh, presumably there before at the beginning. It includes virtually our entire New Testament, and it adds a couple of other books, uh, but says they're only for private reading. The Wisdom of Solomon and the Shepherd of Hermas, books that were well known in the early church as being useful for uh, devotional reading and encouragement, but, but not necessarily viewed as scripture. So you get right here at the beginning of this period of listing, you get the Miratorian canon. And then over the course of this period, you get various people uh, listing off the books well before there were even church councils or anything like that. So for example, an early church scholar by the name of Origen writing about 230 AD, he lists off the books and he, he actually breaks them into two categories. He has 21 out of our 27 that he says, accepted by everybody, recognized by all. Then he has um, six out of the 27 uh, that he says, here's some books that are questioned by some, that they're not recognized by everybody. That's actually one of the categories that helped people think through, oh, uh, should we accept these books or not? Is were they universally accepted? And some books were just small and they weren't read that often, much like today, for example, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, 2nd Peter, and then James and Hebrews. Those were the six books that Origen says not everybody recognizes these books. And you could see with 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude, they're just not read that much. James and Hebrews were written to a very specific group of people, and so they weren't recognized by everybody as well. Um, you get the well-known early church historian Eusebius written uh, writing around 310 and he mentions 22 universally accepted books. Uh, and then he has five that are disputed by some, but he describes them as they're known and accepted by most. And then finally, you get a final full list in 367, and it lists the 27 books of the New Testament. And uh, this is Athanasius' festal letter. It's a letter written by a church father, and he lists off the 27 books of the New Testament. And for the first time, he uses the word canon to describe them. Here's our official list, uh, 367. And then um, you finally get a council in 397, the, the Council of Carthage, which 
uh, recognizes all 27 and formally confirmed these as here's the books that the church has always recognized. That's sort of the process in this period of listing is uh, they're simply recognizing and listing the books they've always accepted. And they're even willing to acknowledge some question these books because they're not as widely read and widely known. Uh, and that was one of the the questions about them. How do they decide all this? Well, again, authority precedes canonicity. Authority precedes being in the official list. And, uh, and so all they're doing is recognizing which books are the ones we've always recognized as speaking with, coming to us with the authority of the apostles, either being written by an apostle or written by somebody closely associated with an apostle. That was the key criteria. That's why when false books started showing up later, they attached apostles' names to them because they were trying to actually gain some credibility by attaching an apostle's name to it. And guess what? It wasn't like the church didn't notice the difference. Like they knew, like, here's the books we've always accepted. And so um, the early church did not vote on which books were in and which books were out. There wasn't a lot of question about which books were in and which books were out. They inherited um, a, this concept of divinely authorized spokesmen and divinely um, inspired writings from the Old Testament. They began to circulate and copy and collect these books virtually from the get-go. Um, these were the ones that were recognized with authority. We have church uh, fathers um, that clearly had collections of books right after the time period of the apostles. And so these books were collected and circulated. So when they start listing off the books, all they're doing is saying, here's the ones we've always recognized. All these other ones that are showing up now, no, they're false and they're spur spurious books and don't trust them. Here's the books we recognize. That's how the New Testament canon came to be. And in fact, we actually have copies of the early collections well before the period of listing. We have copies of papyri and collections of papyri that have a bunch of Paul's letters and or collections of the Gospels um, and all of that. We have copies of these things that begin emerging during that time period of circulating and collecting when they were already beginning to put all these together well before the time period of listing. And so we know uh, which books the early church recognized as speaking with the authority of the apostles who were Jesus' divinely commissioned spokesmen. And so we know that the books we have in our New Testament are the reliable, trustworthy, authoritative books that tell us the truth about Jesus and uh, speak on how to live the Christ-like life as a follower of Jesus. And that's what the New Testament really is for. It's to help us follow Jesus well as his people living in this world. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Bible and Life. Hope that's helpful to you and gives you greater confidence in your New Testament. Thanks as well to those of you who faithfully support The Bible and Life, the listener's commentary. Thank you for your generosity and for your prayers. And if you want to join the team of supporters, uh, we still are only about 70, 75% funded, if you will, like meeting minimum monthly need. We need about 25% more just to hit minimum monthly need. There's so much more we could do if we had a little bit more funds. And so if you want to join the team of supporters, there is a link down in the notes below uh, where you can uh, set up a monthly or a one-time gift. And right now, I've just been giving away a free access to the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. 
to any and everybody who sets up a monthly donation. So if you want access to the Study Hub, set up a monthly donation to uh, uh, support this work, and I will eventually send you, usually within a day, I'll send you a link on how you can get access to the Study Hub. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry, and thanks for being a part of the Bible and Life family. God bless you guys. I look forward to talking to you again next week.